Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Transportation Task Force is slated to have its first meeting in Hamilton next week, yet we only know the name of one of the members. City Council not really happy about this. And keeping on the topic of City Council, they made the call to not build the arena and parking garage on Lime Ridge Mall property, and that's getting mixed reaction. One of the promises Doug Ford ran on was to end hallway health care. How's that working out? Not well, according to the latest numbers. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. This uh, task force that was uh, is being set up, I guess. Maybe it is. We don't know all the details on this yet. This is the uh, transportation task force that was uh, set up by the Ford government, specifically by Transportation Minister Caroline Mulrooney, uh, after they announced that they were uh, withdrawing their billion-dollar funding for Hamilton's LRT project. And uh, we are told, I guess that what this task force is going to do is make recommendations about where that money and how that money is going to be spent. I know, these these are unelected people. You've got concerns? Well, so do a lot of people around the council table. John Paul Danko, City Councilor for Ward 8 up on the mountain, uh, joins us to talk about this. Uh, John Paul, appreciate the time. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Good. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about this, because I think at this point, uh, we've got more questions than answers about what this is all about, what's it going to be made up of, and, and actually where where they're going on this. More questions than answers, that's for sure. So last night at Council, we received uh, an update from staff uh, from a memo from our city manager that outlines um, a few points about the task force and that the province has asked her to be one of the members. And then we also received a letter from the Minister of Transportation, Carolyn Mulroney, which outlines some of the, um, the requirements for members on the task force and a draft terms of reference, which is pretty high level and, and doesn't really explain um, how the decisions are going to be made or what information is going to be considered. Um, but that's, to date, that's all that we've received from the, from the province. I understand that the first meeting of the task force is going to be as early as next week. And uh, again, their mandate is to come up with a, a draft list of projects for the city of Hamilton by the end of February, which is incredibly quickly and uh, should definitely raise a lot of flags for Hamilton residents, red flags for Hamilton residents. Jeff, I haven't seen the, con- the, the, the uh, correspondence that you just referenced, but I mean, you guys talked about it at the meeting yesterday. Uh, was there any explanation of uh, this cloak of secrecy about who's going to be on this thing? No explanation about the secrecy, and that's one of my really major concerns about this. Um, because in the terms of reference, there is a, a clause about confidentiality, and it basically says that um, all the records, documents, reports, and advice that uh, the task force may consider, which I assume includes any of their meetings and deliberations, are confidential, except as approved by the Minister of Transportation. So I don't see how we as citizens of the city of Hamilton can have any confidence in this task force if it's going to be done completely behind closed doors. Um, th- that's how the project LRT was canceled in the first place, with a, a secret report and a, you know, a secret decision behind closed doors. And I think the last thing that we need, whether you're in favor of LRT or against LRT, is just to have the, you know, the province make these kinds of secret decisions and then impose them on the, on the city of Hamilton. That's just not good government, no matter how you look at it. As I mentioned on the program yesterday, I said in a rather bizarre way what the ministry has done here is it has united Hamiltonians, uh, both pro-LRT and anti-LRT. Everybody's ticked off at the government now. 
uh, whether, whether, no matter what side you were on, because here we are in a situation where we don't know who these people are. We don't know what the criteria is. And, and I've got some serious concerns about this just on principle, because there has been, as we've seen since the day that Rob Ford got elected, a propensity to fill any, any of these appointed positions with patronage people. And, and is that really what we want here? We don't know who the other four members are. We, we do know that... And I, we, uh, by the way, I don't include Jeanette Smith in that. I mean, as city manager, that's great that she's there and on the, and the board, that we need a voice there. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, really, Jeanette, the, the city manager for the city of Hamilton is really the only choice that we could have. I mean, she has access to the resources of the city of Hamilton, which will be absolutely critical to this decision-making process. Um, I, I think, to put into perspective... To, to find uh, a list of projects that we can invest a billion dollars on is not an easy or something uh, an easy task or something that should be done quickly on the back of an envelope. I mean, um, so we, we, we've submitted a list of tr- council-approved ap- plans and projects such as the trans- transportation master plan, the 10-year transit strategy, um, our climate change strategy, things like that. But to actually go through those plans and select out, okay, we're going to fund this, we're not going to fund that. I mean, there's an incredible amount of work and due diligence that has to go into that decision-making process. And uh, to how, you know, five, un- and not including Jeanette, um, you know, four unelected people and Jeanette are going to do that in a few weeks is is, is beyond me. And to come up with anything that, that is, a, you know, a, a a meaningful evaluation anyway. You've submitted stuff. and In other words, stuff that's already been approved, and, and you know, you're just looking for funding for it. Did you get any assurance at all that this this task force is even going to consider that list? No. We, ha- we have nothing from the task force. So for and all you know, that could end up in the blue box on Tuesday morning. This is The task force is simply providing advice to the ministry. So at the end of the day, it's the Minister of Transportation that gets the final call on this. Um and one of my other really big concerns here is that this billion dollars that they're promising goes strictly to city assets. So when we're talking about transportation in Hamilton, a lot of times we start talking about go transit or widening highways or other things that are provincial responsibilities. And that money for LRT was for the benefit of the city of Hamilton. It was an economic development plan in a transportation plan. Um, but b- above all else, it was about developing commercial property tax base and a multi-residential property tax base, which benefits all taxpayers in Hamilton. So when this task force is deliberating, things like Go Transit that are 100% a provincial responsibility should not be uh, on the, uh, the list of consideration at all. It should only be projects that are city assets. And then the other major, major concern I have is the total um, dollar commitment to the city. So we know now that uh, the capital contribution for Hamilton's LRT was $1 billion. But we also know that there is an additional $2.7 billion that was committed through the Treasury, through leaked documents that we've learned this, um, for a total of $3.7 billion that was committed to Hamilton's LRT for the life cycle costing, the life cycle um, maintenance and operation over 30 years. So if this task force is only considering the $1 billion capital cost for any infrastructure improvements in Hamilton, the major question is what happens to that extra $2.7 billion in life cycle costing? 
Um, and right now it seems like that's just going to be simply downloaded onto Hamilton taxpayers. What happens to the land that's been purchased? That's another question that we, we don't know. Um, so as of right now, Mex- Metrolinx still owns all those properties. There's some question if, uh, if say, the tra- task force decides to go to BRT, they would have to look at are those properties still part of a rapid transit corridor along King Street? Or even more buses, do we still need those properties? Do we sell them off and then maybe, you know, 10 years later we decide that, oh, we did actually want to do LRT and then have to buy them all back again? It's just a mess no matter how you look at it. There has been a propensity in the past, though, as this transit debate has raged, uh, and not just on council but within this community, uh, of doing exactly what you just uh, warned us about, is conflating Go Transit with the public transit here in the city. Are you concerned that this this committee, this task force, uh, may go down that road as well? Well, when you read the terms of reference, it says that uh, specifically that they're looking at things that benefit and fall within the policies of the city of Hamilton and the province. And the goals and aspirations of the province are not necessarily aligned with the goals and aspirations of the city of Hamilton. So I do have a major concern that they will be focused on shifting this money to provincial projects and provincial responsibilities that they would have had to fund anyway and further shortchange the residents of the city of Hamilton. The other element to this, and I know this is the one I've talked to a number of your colleagues about this off the record, and they, they seem to have this common concern that you've already expressed here, is that I, I guess the best way to characterize it is you feel like you guys are right now on the outside looking in. Oh, we're absolutely on the outside looking in. Um, you know, the city manager is the council's employee, so she is directly responsible to us. But we don't have any say whatsoever about um, how this task force is going to operate, what projects are going to be put on the list, or, you know, any information or influence over the deliberations. Um, We don't even know if if they're going to be able to come back to us with, with updates on the discussions. So we're completely in the dark here. And it's it's really frustrating as an elected representative because that that's my job. That's what I was elected to do is to represent the residents of Ward 8 and, and the city of Hamilton. And, you know, the, the province is effectively taking that out of council's hands. Well, let, I'm going to get into a procedural thing, and I don't want to go too deep into the weeds here, but I think it's something that most of our listeners could understand. If uh, this, is, as you said, this letter seems to indicate that most of this work, or at least a lot of it, is going to be done confidentially, in other words, in, in closed session, uh, even though you've got the city manager on that committee, is she not bound by confidentiality that she can't even inform council what they're talking about? There's some question about that. So the initial letter that was sent to her by the minister said that she would have to sign a confidentiality agreement. Now, they've, I believe she's confirmed with uh, our city manager and the Minister of Transportation that she would not have to sign a confidentiality agreement, that she would be able to come back and at least update council. But we don't know if that's a, if that's a two-way street, if council will be able to, you know, give her information that, you know, that we direct her to now bring back to the task force. And I would suspect that that's probably not the case. I don't think that they really want to hear from the you know, the elected representatives of the city of Hamilton at all. We went through a rather uh, rigorous exercise during amalgamation, as we were approaching amalgamation, and I, I experienced that. I was on, on city council at the time. 
and they set up what they call a transition board. Marvin Ryder, in fact, was the chair of the, of the transition board. There were a number of people that were on the board, all uh, incredibly talented people and dedicated people. But the meetings were open to the public. Now, and even as a city councilor, I could attend. I couldn't contribute to the meeting, but I could watch and get an idea of what they were talking about as they basically reconstructed the way the governance was going to be done here in Hamilton. I, I don't understand the secrecy on, in this issue. And that's, that should be a huge concern for the residents of Hamilton and for people all across the province that these kinds of decisions, now, at the end of the day, this is a billion-dollar decision that could be made in a closed-door meeting somewhere in Toronto, right? Um, so, you know, the fact that if the public are shut out of this, that if it's not even available for people to watch and see and, you know, there's so much knowledge that we have in our community about um, and passion for transportation, for LRT, for cycling, for, you know, our road network. People are very engaged in this community. And if those documents were released publicly, people would sort through them. They would give their elected representatives information. They would, um, you know, for lack of a better word, they would assist in the process and they would be engaged in it. And, you know, I'm, I'm very concerned that, you know, we're basically shutting all that knowledge out, and it, it it speaks to the overall legitimacy of the task force that if you're going to do something behind closed doors, the question is, what do you have to hide? Well, and from whom are you getting the information, uh, and who is prioritizing this? Are there people that are transportation experts? Are there people that are transportation experts about Hamilton Transit? I, you know, uh, again, we don't know because we don't know who's going to be on the panel. Exactly. And just thinking about beyond just the transportation aspect of this um, is the economic uh, ramifications for taxpayers in Hamilton. Um, a major part of LRT, like I said off the, off the top, was economic development and shifting that tax burden away from residential taxpayers and onto a new commercial and multi-residential tax base that would be developed along the, the LRT corridor. So, when we're talking about the projects that the task force might be considering, are they considering those task, those tax impl- implications to residents in Hamilton? Are they really thinking about, okay, if we build this project but not this project, how is that going to affect our long-term growth plan and tax projections? Um, you know, all of this is, is intimately tied into all the, the information and the work that our professional staff do at the city. So. Uh, you know, again, there's there's so many more questions than answers at this point. I'm almost out of time, but I've got one more question. I want to try to get some some clarity on here, if you could. Uh, we're told that obviously it th- th- looks like this meeting is going to happen on Tuesday, the first meeting for this task force. Uh, we were also told some time ago that uh, it seems as if at least some report, maybe even the final report from this task force, is probably going to come down by the end of February. Uh, that's not a whole lot of time, which indicates to to the skeptics like me. Uh, that maybe they've already got a list. Uh, I, I think that would be something that uh, I think a lot of people have speculated that there's already a short list or you know a, a list of things that they would prefer to uh, steer the task force towards. Um, but the the terms of reference expires no later than January fifteenth, twenty twenty one. So it seems like they're giving themselves a year in total uh, to really you know, come up with a preliminary list in February and then continue discussions if need be for up to a year. John Paul, we'll keep an eye on this and uh, hopefully get some clarity on this Tuesday when these people, whomever they are, get together. Thanks for this today. Thanks for having me on.
John Paul Danko, the uh, city councilor for Ward 8. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, one of the other contentious issues that uh, city council dealt with yesterday, uh, and they did it in pretty quick fashion, I guess, was to, to give the final thumbs down to the uh, Lime Ridge Mall Arena parking garage proposal that had been uh, floated by Bulldogs owner Michael Andelar and, of course, uh, Cadillac Fairview, who own the Lime Ridge Mall property. It wasn't just those two entities, by the way, not just the arena and the parking garage. Uh, Cadillac Fairview was uh, talking with some major uh, commercial and residential developments on that property as well, but they said they needed the arena as the anchor. Well, city council says they don't want any part of that. So is it dead in the water? And what are the ramifications? Esther Paul is the uh, city councilor for Ward 7 up on the Central Mountain. She joins us on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to give us her take on this. Esther, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. Nice to be on the show. You've been a strong advocate for this. I know you've talked to Michael Andlar a lot. You've talked to mm-hmm. people at Cadillac Fairview. Uh, not so sure that city staff did. I know that uh, when I was talking with one of the councillors, it was characterized that uh, negotiations had gone uh, had taken place about what they wanted to do and what Mr. Andlar was proposing. Uh, but when I asked Michael Andlar about that, he said there was one meeting. It was less than an hour. That doesn't sound much like a negotiation. It didn't sound very much like city staff were caring. It, we're not interested. You know, you're absolutely right. I am so frustrated in this that even yesterday, when it came up uh, about uh, the arena, we just voted, and I voted no, and that was my stance. I could not uh, resurrect it again. Because I want to tell you, the study was so shallow, they didn't even go a deep dive anywhere. It was already a done deal. Four years ago, the staff, and council said there was no way that they would put the arena in. It had to be downtown. So they looked at it at the length of that. It's downtown, so they didn't they didn't do no deep dive. They just said no right from the beginning. Well, and we're going to get into why in a couple of minutes, and I know some of it has to be speculative, but there's a couple of questions I'd like to get your uh, your response yeah. to. Uh, but the other element to this, too, are the ramifications, because as we've talked to representatives from Cadillac Fairview, Scott Radley had them on the show, uh, and uh, we, you know, the, of course, the laydown. Uh, this huge, huge uh, commercial and, and residential development that Cadillac Fairview is proposing was contingent upon an anchor, which in their mind is an arena. With mm-hmm. no arena, uh, we're hearing the Cadillac Fairview just, may just back away from the whole project now. And that is the sad thing. You know, they, they're paying around, I think, $12 million on taxes. With the arena, with the hotel they want to build, with the restaurants, with the condos, that would have brought in a lot more taxes and uh, entertainment on the mountain, which we desperately need as well. But instead, the whole report was done written with the downtown lens only. So when you do that, can you see anything else? You can't see the profit on the mountain. And the thing that bothers me the most is that when they did the study for um, the downtown, they said in order to succeed, we need the arena. Now, if Michael Anlauer decides to leave, and I don't blame him if he does, if he decides to leave, what do we do then? What about if Cadillac Fairview and Michael Anla would decide, okay, we're going to take this ourselves, we're going to pay for everything, and we're going to have it on the mountain? What does council do then? What What do they do? What do they do? Right. You, you talk to know. your council colleagues. Is there any any appetite at all for? There for... is no appetite at all. Matter of fact, I want to tell you something, and I I'm always honest. In closed doors, they they that's what they ask. 
why are we doing this? It's only downtown. And I said, well, why did we look at it? That's because we want to please you. And the reason is I put that motion to even look at it. And in retrospect, I wish I would have had a consultant. Maybe Michael Anlauer would have had a consultant and do a, a proper study. Uh, now, I don't want to throw the staff nor my counseling under the bus. I'm not that type of woman. But I just want to say I wish it was done in a better way. I feel for... Um, Michael Anwar for Cadillac Fairview. It is a great mall, but right now it needs help. It needs to be um, revisioned. And the vision was the Cadillacs with the arena and then start building restaurants, uh, hotels. And I feel, this is the truth, I feel like the downtown feels like the mountain is suburb. They don't realize it's a 10, 12 minute drive from, from Limerick Mall to downtown. You know, uh, they had um, things like zoning. It's not zoned right. Well, I thought it was already zoned. All of a sudden, you know, it takes 18 months for zoning. They were bringing up things that I had no idea. And the worst was this, the bonusing. The bonusing, should they have found out about the bonusing issue? I, I thought they already knew that after 20 years, it would belong to the city. But they weren't clear on that, so... They, didn't, uh, they just said no, and that's it. And I just didn't have an enemy to keep fighting. There was, uh, in the heat of the stadium debate not a number of years ago, and I, I, you're an engaged citizen, I'm sure you remember this. <laughs> At one point when, you know, they, there were still some people that were hung up on the waterfront and, and others wanted Confederation Park and, and et cetera, and, and somebody at one point proposed way up uh, on what they call Meadowlands East, uh, up in that area there where all those new stores, the big box stores are, uh, there was some land up there. And uh, again, the council of the day asked for a report on this, and it finally came out. And it was it was a it was garbage, frankly. I mean, what they did yeah. is, is they made they said the costs were outstanding and, and just crazy off the map. But they double counted an awful lot of stuff. In other words, they included infrastructure costs which were already planned for that area and said that was going to be part of the cost of the stadium. In other words, they did everything they could to make it look unattractive. And and I get the same sense that this has happened with this stuff. I I really do because, uh, like I said before, the length was only for downtown. The study, the feasibility study was only for downtown. So when you have that lens, how can you look, how can you see the other side? But the saddest thing for me, and uh, that I sat three times with some staff, with Michael, with Cattle Fairview, uh, the mayor, and I respect them all, and I want to be clear to saying that. I just never had uh, a tingling that they were just playing games, just saying, yeah, give us the proposal. Why would they ask for a proposal if they had no intention of even looking at the mountain? Well, they did it. They they did it. I I, I can't get in their heads, but I I would conclude that they did it just to try to, you know, take some of the heat off and make it look as if they're trying to be open-minded about it when they've already made up their mind. That's right, and I feel that's what's happened, and uh, I and that that's why I am sorry, and I would apologize to Michael Anlauer for even myself as a new counselor sitting with them, uh, with the staff, and with uh, you know I thought okay good they're going to get a proposal they will really look at it, but it wasn't done that way. It, it really um, it's very disappointed, and yesterday when I voted, um, you know I saw Peggy Chapman few of. Uh, uh, the cheerleaders for the mountain there, and uh, not one word was said. Just vote. 
And I thought, I'm not going to say anything. It, it is a done deal because I know they told me it's a done deal. But now, now that it's a done deal, that it's downtown, what are we going to do with First Ontario? Are we going to spend money to fix it? Are we going to tear it down? Buy land? Will that not cost the city money? Have they considered how much it's going to cost? Let me ask you something. I, know, I I can't ask you to betray confidential information because I know you could get in all okay. kinds of trouble for that. Yeah. But we can talk in generalities because I've heard a number of rumors from some very informed uh, people around this community over the last little while that uh, at least some members of city council have already made commitments to some of the developers downtown that it's going to be downtown come hell or high water. Uh, and 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 some people have purchased land based on that. In other words, you you buy this, and I'll I'll make sure the arena's here. Uh, there are one or two developers that do an awful lot of work here that the city just seems to be doing business with, uh, without opening it up to possibilities of of others like Cadillac Fairview, and in this case, Mr. Andelar. Is 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 the city council already making a deal, or that they just haven't announced yet with somebody else to do something downtown? Well, we're going to have a meeting, I think it's uh, February, where this is going to come out. And, uh, of course, there's people looking into taking over and to buy land. We, uh, you know, I can't tell you all the different locations, but they're looking at it. But you know what? Some of the councillor um, uh, already said not one penny for the arena. Well, it's going to cost a penny. We've got land. If we give our first Ontario to someone, that costs money. Downtown land is very expensive. So we are paying in the long run. So I know there's investment. I know people are already looking uh, to buy um, or to rebuild or to fix whatever. That's going to cost us money. But the saddest thing, Michael and our does not want it down there, and for very good reasons. And the reasons are this. Families are up on the mountain. We've got all kinds of letters saying how exciting it would be for to bring your children, your family. That's where they come from, from the mountain. We have to go downtown where there's no parking. We have to uh, go uh, in and not have a... a but Esther, Esther in, the, in the early days of these discussions... Uh, I know, because I, I talked to Michael about this years ago, Mr. Andelar, he was not against the idea of a downtown arena. It's just that he said the city's dragging their heels on this, and they still don't have a commitment. It's going to be years before they even put a shovel in the ground, and he, as a businessman, says, I can't wait that long. Exactly. And this, this is not as if he's anti-downtown and, and, you know, and saying oh, anything but downtown. He gave them lots of time, and, and there was nothing, nothing from the city. So he took the initiative and started working with Cadillac Fairview and said, "Okay, well, there's a proposal there." The city, yeah. the city, look at the city said no to his thing last night, and, and I guess there's not much we can do about that at this stage. But there is no other proposal. All there is is this dream that they want to have an arena downtown. Uh, I'm going to tell you, at the end of the day, what I think is going to happen here is they're going to put pig on a lipstick and try to fix up First Ontario Centre. Uh, I don't know whether they want to refurbish it or whatever, but they're just going to try to do that and say, there, there's our arena and it's downtown. It's going to be the same bones, the same building that's already there. You're absolutely right. I think that's what's going to happen. Well, that's not good enough for, for Mr. Andelar. I mean, he's Hello? already said that that's an untenable situation. Hello? You're there? Yes, I, I, you're absolutely right. So you're gonna you're gonna have you're gonna have a 35 year old arena that's get, that yeah. had a little bit of a makeover and yeah. no and no major tenant. I heard that too. That that that's one proposal. They're going to fix it up, and that's where we're going to have it because we need the seventeen thousand for entertainment. You know what really hurts me the most when councillors say 
do we really need uh, a bulldog? Do we really need the uh, the arena to? They don't bring much money. We want more entertainment. Well, if they that's how they feel. If they feel they don't want the arena, let Michael Anlauer go and build it wherever he wants, and let's help him do it to bring economic for every part of the city. And you know what? If they do that, where's uh, Mr. Anlauer going to pay? Play? while they're fixing it or while they're rebuilding. Are they going to go out of the city to play somewhere else? Well, remember what happened with the Tiger Cats, Esther? They had to go to Guelph. Right. So where would Michael Anlauer go? It's just unfair. I just wished that they really did a better study, visibly, and find out the real truth. And if the real truth was that it wasn't feasible on the mountain, I could take that. But I saw shallow uh, um, study. And that's all it was. And when we were in camera, basically, hey, it's only for downtown. That's the lens we looked at it. What kind of argument is that? And I just sat there, and I was honestly, Bill, I was so frustrated that sometimes I just don't know how to um, say the words the right way. And I, and I felt like they were sort of, they're real great counsel. They treat me wonderful. But I felt like they were treating me like, oh, you don't know uh, better, you know. So that's how I felt. Well, if the fix is in and they've already decided to go with somebody else, why didn't they tell Mr. Andlar that? Yeah, exactly. Save him a lot, an awful lot of time and money. Well, that's my point. Four years and the last year where I've been in council. I heard it about three years ago. Um, there was a, a, was a possibility on the mountain three years ago. And now, you know, uh, so we wasted four years already. So, and, and that's my frustration. And uh, I kind of a fair view. I hope they do build. I hope uh, because we need economics on the mountain. We need jobs on the mountain, you know. And another thing about the, the transit you know, with the LRT, we don't know if it's going to be happening or not. Probably not. I'm not sure. But isn't it great that we could have talked to the federal and the provincial and talk about the transit on the mountain where they could have helped us maybe on the garage? But they didn't look into that, you know. They they said they, they really didn't look into it. And I think they should have. They should have gone deeper and looked at the uh, province and the federal would have given us some money towards the parking lot. But it wasn't meant to be. The, you, you can dig out the report, and I don't have it in front of me, but I know it's probably back in my office, of, of the millions and millions of dollars it would cost. Because remember, you've had two different consultant reports now that gave you a price tag on how much it would cost to refurbish First Ontario Centre. And it's significant, a lot of money yeah. uh, that has to be spent. So uh, to suggest that this is going to be done without any impact on taxpayers is, is total BS because it's already going to have that cost. Well, that money's going to come from us. We know that already. And you have to ask yourself, do you want to do something like that for an old, old building or do you want to get something that's going to be more cost efficient and built better? But uh, councils already seem to have made up their mind. They seem to have already jumped into bed with somebody else. And I guess we're going to find out the name. I got a pretty good idea who it is uh, <laughs> in the next couple of weeks who that's yeah. going to be. Yeah. But in the meantime, uh, Mr. Andlar is, didn't become a successful businessman by, you know, losing money. I mean, yeah. at some point he's going to have to make a stand on this. And if we're going to do this and spend these millions, and I think it was $42 million was the number that comes to my head, uh, to refurbish First Ontario Centre. Yeah. Uh, for the sake of what? We're going to spend $42 million just so we can have eight or nine concerts, eight or nine major concerts in that arena? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the rest of the time the lights are going to be out because there's no major tenant? Does that really make sense? I, I, I don't see it. I don't think it makes sense. 
But uh, I just hope that uh, Carol Fairview still has that vision because uh, I would hate to see that mall go down, uh, be a, I think it's a, a B mall right now or an A mall, could, could come down to a C or D, and it, it's just our tax base, you know, $12 million a year right now they pay. I just don't like it. I, I just don't like to see Cattle Fairview uh, not having that opportunity. Yeah, I understand. And and by the way, that that amount would have gone up to about eighteen million dollars annually too if they put the arena in the, yeah, in the other complex. Yeah, eighteen or nineteen million dollars yeah. a year. Esther, we got we got to break it off. Uh, well, I don't know what the next steps are here, but I got a pretty good idea where council's going yeah. and who's driving the bus here. Thanks so much for this. Appreciate Thank the time. You very much. Thank you. Esther Pauls uh, from uh, Ward 7, of course, which is where Lime Ridge Mall is. A uh, lot of emails on this every time we bring this subject up. Alexa writes, uh, clearly council's agenda is to evict the Bulldogs and refurbish a building so we can enjoy in con- nine bloody concerts a year. It would be cheaper to rent buses and transport and anybody who wants to go see a concert a few times a year to either Burlington or Toronto. How about we do that and just let Hamilton become nothing but a bedroom community like it used to be? No vision, no city pride, no community. What is wrong with this city council? Alexis, appreciate the email and for articulating, I think, what a lot of people are feeling about the way council's handling this again. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to do a follow-up on a story we did yesterday about the state of healthcare, specifically about hospitals, primary care facilities, as they call it here in uh, this city. Each and every one of them is working over capacity. In other words, they have more patients than they have beds, so that people are on gurneys. And you've seen this if you've gotten to visit friends or relatives in the in the hospital in in the last little while, or even if you've been there. Uh, they have uh, patients. They have beds right now in hallways, of course. Uh, they have them in waiting rooms. They have them in conference rooms. All over the hospital, trying to find space and trying to find some place for somebody to go. We told you yesterday that uh, I think in Hamilton and, and, and surrounding area, it's about a 17-hour wait oftentimes uh, for you to get a, a bed upstairs. Even if you're admitted. I mean, if you go to ER and they say, yes, we're admitting you because of your medical condition, you don't get a bed right away. It could be a day, could be a two days, could be longer. Well, that's having an impact on at what's happening on the ground floor too, especially when it comes to paramedics. Uh, there are some rather startling statistics here. So before I bring Mario in here, just let me run a couple of these things by you here. It took Hamil- Hamilton ambulances more than 20 minutes for life-threatening 911 calls. 20 minutes. And these are for emergencies such as, uh, well, heart attacks, uh, drug overdoses, uh, trouble breathing. 450 signs in the first 10 months of 2019. That took longer than it's, it should have. A further 108 uh, with things like fractured hips, abdominal pain, etc., it took over 30 minutes for them to respond. It's not acceptable. Mario Pastorero is, of course, the president of Opsu Local 256. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to give us uh, some details on this. Mario, as always, thanks for the time. I wish it was about good news reports, but this is, uh, this is pretty troubling. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me on. It's, uh, it's a grim picture that doesn't seem to be improving, uh, Bill. As you reported, there's... Um, the hospitals are working at above 100% capacity virtually every day. That puts a strain on our ambulance service uh, in that we can't offload our patients because there's no beds for our patients in. Pre-hospital care, which is our core role, has now become in-hospital care, and hallway health care is now the norm for us. Yeah, that, that's what I find frustrating about this more than anything else, and, and it's, it's a complex situation. I understand that. But the reality here is that, you know, when the government says they're going to try to eliminate hallway health care, it's worse. 
Uh, in 2019, these numbers are, are are just well, they're they're not acceptable for sure. But I mean, we're we're on a crisis situation here. Yeah, and it's been predicted. I mean, uh, we shouldn't be that surprised, you know, given some of the drivers uh, of those call volumes, uh, the elderly, which for us as a service comprise approximately 30 percent of our overall call volume, which is escalating at an average of 4% per year, um, these patients have nowhere to go. There is no capacity within home care, long-term care. Uh, Patients are being jammed up in the acute care hospitals, which is creating a downstream impact on the emergency departments and, as a consequence, on our ambulance service. Uh, Just don't see it getting any better. I know the provincial government, the existing government, has announced um, funding 15,000 long-term care beds by 2024. Uh, unfortunately, we have a waiting list of 35,000 Ontarians waiting for a nursing home bed. That's an 80% increase from 2011 alone. But these demographic projections were predicted, so it shouldn't catch us off guard. Well, and, and there's a system that's supposed to be working and supposed to be in place. And, and I guess is is even more frustrating about this, Mario, is most of us, and certainly the people in government to a certain extent anyway, I hope, understand how this is supposed to work. Uh, one of the reasons why hospitals are over capacity upstairs there uh, is the fact that there are some people in the hospital that shouldn't be in that hospital. They should be, as you mentioned, at home recovering, or they should be at a long-term care facility, but there aren't enough beds there, and there's not enough uh, staffing for home care for these sorts of things. So they're stuck. They can't discharge them when they're they're not capable of looking after themselves. So those people are taking up a bed in a facility where they shouldn't actually be, but there's nowhere else for them to go. And it, the, the, you're right, there's a domino effect here, isn't there? There sure is. And, and the province's own uh, fiscal watchdog, financial accountability office has stated quite clearly Ontario health spending is not keeping up keeping pace with the aging population you know, I, I think we have a, a moral obligation to take care of the elderly who have paid into the system and now need a place to stay and we're not doing that we're letting them down we're letting them down at the hospital level at the nursing uh, nursing home uh, level um, and even at our level we can get to some of our patients that require um, care, require a timely response. Um, and you mentioned the numbers, you know, 20 minutes, you know, 457 occasions. And these are for life-threatening calls. Uh, the, the, the calls that, that dominate the elderly often are falls, fractured hips. They're even worse. So they're, they're left withering in pain, and you know, they call 911, but they're not getting a timely response. Uh, we're, we're letting them down, and I think we need sustainable solutions. There's been a lot of promises, a lot of different measures, but truly, I don't think anybody can debate the fact that it's a lack of funding that's creating these problems. And uh, until we recognize that there has to be a priority in the way we spend our tax dollars, we're going to keep coming up with band-aids and excuses, and who's going to suffer is those that are most vulnerable, and that's the elderly. And Ontario, by the way, is the worst funded of all the provinces in this country when it comes to healthcare spending, vis-a-vis, especially when it comes to hospitals and long-term care facilities. Uh, there's a ratio, there's a, a, a mathematical equation on this. And anyway, we're dead last. 
Uh, and that, that's it's more than embarrassing. It's, it's life-threatening. There's another one, though, if you want to talk about efficiency, and politicians obviously like to get into that discussion, too, obviously, aside from the compassion element of this. But this is the one that jumped out at me. And by the way, we, for those of you who are just jumping on with us here, uh, we're quoting 2019 statistics. Obviously, those are the most recent ones uh, after the, uh, the surveys have been done and they've accumulated all these numbers. And I know you're aware of this, uh, Mario. Hamilton ambulances wasted 30,549 hours waiting in hospitals to transfer patients. Thir- that's not efficient. Th- more than 30,000 hours waiting in a hospital they sh- where they could have and should have been back out on the road. Absolutely. It's, it's sucking up a lot of our crew's time. And our crews, as I said, are rendering patient care monitoring vital signs, administering medication during the course of their stay in the hospital, providing hallway health care. We're using that term because it's been um, coined by various governments. Uh, but the fact is, our core function as paramedics is to provide pre-hospital emergency care, not in-hospital emergency care. Definitely not to the degree that we're seeing it. Uh, offload times are increasing. There's examples that you know, uh, our, our paramedics are, are locked in the ER for an excess of two, three, and four hours. We have such examples. That's, that's unacceptable. And some of the initiatives that have been, um, or some of the measures that have been applied, including the funding of uh, the three city hospitals to the tune of $1.3 million to provide dedicated nurses to assist the speeding up of ambulance offloads, has not been sufficiently effective. So, I mean, the, the question is, we're putting $1.3 million towards the three adult hospitals, and we're not getting a good return on that investment. With that same $1.3 million, we can probably staff two 24-7 ambulances. And given the fact that our call volume continues to increase at approximately 4% annually, we could use those additional ambulances, Bill. Yeah, the numbers here are bad enough, but when you start talking about increased call volumes and, and longer wait times from the time people die on 911 until you can actually get on scene uh, because of these shortages, uh, these are life-threatening situations. And let's, let's make no mistake about this. Uh, for sure, and you know, I, I want to quote Councilor Brad Clark in committee. He said, you know, we, we can lay blame, but at the end of the day, it falls on us if things go south. So we as a municipality can only control so many things. We can control the funding of our ambulance staffing, and and hopefully we'll be successful in attaining additional ambulance. Um, Our chief is going to council at the end of this month, and hopefully we can put an additional vehicle on the road. Um, But we're still playing catch-up. We've been understaffed for a significant period of time, and we can't keep up until we catch up. And the annual um, increase of one ambulance only helps us scratch the surface to deal with the increasing call volume. And in la- last year alone, it was approximately 3,000 additional calls for medical assistance bill. And that's slated to increase. So we, we, we have these projections. There's a number of reasons why the, the, there's a greater reliance on our service, the elderly, they're frail, more complex care. Uh, there's different uh, socioeconomic reasons. The fact is, our call volume increases. We need more staffing. And on the provincial side, they need to clean up their act. They need to have a resolute a solution to this problem. And from our perspective, my perspective, it's one of funding. 
and it has to be priority spending, both in long-term care, they've got to stop the cuts within the hospitals, and that creates a better environment for the ambulance service as well as for our citizens. Even from an economic perspective, you know, we've got families that are moving here from other jurisdictions. They're going to assess the state of our health care system. And if they look at these numbers that we're reporting, you know, they might look the other way. Who wants to bring their family? And, and there's an increase in multi-generational families. When their elderly mother may have to wait an hour if she falls and, and an ambulance can't get to her. I mean, these are all considerations. So I, something has to be done. But thus far, there's been a lot of promises, false initiatives, and... The status quo is just not acceptable anymore, Bill. Well, and and if there's any elected official, either at the provincial or even municipal level, frankly, and I think Councillor Clark was bang on with his comments, uh, that thinks that, well, you know, we can't afford to do this. We just have to maintain the status quo because we can't afford to pay any more. It is costing more. Just by virtue of the way the system is not working properly, uh, we mentioned about you know the the number of hours where thirty over thirty thousand hours where your staff are sitting in hospitals because they can't offload the patient. That's a waste of money. Uh, you've got overtime, which is paid, of course. Uh, you've got a number of, of people on your staff right now that are suffering po- post-traumatic stress disorder have to take time off. Uh, that's costing the the city more money that way. This is not an efficient system, and uh, it does. And I, I think people have got to come to the realization it does mean that there's going to have to be an infusion of capital here to try to alleviate this. There's just so many facets of this, and it seems to be getting worse. I know the number of code zeros was down last year, and that's that's good news. But for it's taking longer for you guys to get there, and longer for you to get to offload the patients once you're there. That's not an effective system. For sure. So a, a couple of points. Code zeros have been now been overused, where they don't seem to have the same sting as the first reported one in 2006. So we may have to, and they're all, they're not even reported to council any longer. I just don't think they're resonating to the degree that they should, both with our counselors and the public. But when you create a narrative of your grandmother or my mother um, or the elderly falling down and having to wait 40, 60 minutes for an ambulance, that creates a different emotional connection. But that is the reality. As far as the impact on paramedics, absolutely. You know, the clinical impacts, the physical impacts, the emotional impacts and how they manifest in increasing lost time, increasing WSIB claims. I mean, th- this is all part of the costing that goes towards or as a result of the lack of appropriate funding for our healthcare system. So our medics are feeling it. And as a service, we're doing the best we can. But we just need the right level of investment to make sure we can do the best we can do as a municipality while we put pressure on the provincial government. It was two years ago that Mayor Eisenberger actually had his experience within the hospital. It's 2018, January of 2018. And there was a lot of fur and there was going to be a task force and everybody's going to be at the table. Well, where did that task force go and what's happening since then? I'm not sure. Things aren't getting better. Got. To, I, I know. That, you know. That you might. Your boss, Mike Sanderson, of course, is the chief uh, for the paramedics, and uh, and I know he's he's obviously on side with this. I mean, he's the one that's trying to get counsel to understand the gravity of this situation. Uh, and and uh, I, again, I want to go back to Brad Clark's comments. It's easy to point fingers and say, well, the province has to step up, and that's true. They do. 
uh, you know, the downloading of services and, and, and the lack of funding for health care in this province is, is reaching crisis proportions. But the city's got to step up here, too. I mean, every year at budget time, you and I have these discussions, and, and councillors say, yeah, we understand, we understand, but don't, the money's not there. The money's there. It's just a matter of whether or not they understand the gravity of this situation and how important it is to fund. We've only asked for responsible funding that we've been able to prove with unequivocal data. And we have numerous counselors that understand this. Our GM, Paul Johnson, uh, being relatively new in his position, absolutely understands it. Our Chief Mike Sanderson understands it. Um, it it's really a elected a municipal uh, elected official decision as to whether they provide the level of funding we require. And, and unfortunately, as we've, we've said, we're trying to play catch-up, and we can't keep up until we catch up. And there's been uh, staffing deficiency in years past. We're trying to make some headway, but when you consider the increasing calls and demands on our service because of the demographic factors, we just need a hand up to try to deliver the care that I think we we ought to deliver to our patients and our citizens. Well, it is a matter of life and death, and I hope City Council understands that. Mario, let's uh, stay in touch on this. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Mario Pastor, of course, absolute local uh, president for uh, Local 256, the uh, ambulance drivers, of course, and paramedics. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.